Welcome to the Church at Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. This week, our lead pastor, Mike Yearly, continues his series entitled, The Message and the Movement, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And today's message is the eighth in the series, and it's entitled, The Character of the Kingdom, Peace. Well, good morning. Great to see you. It's clouding up out there, isn't it? No, it's beautiful, crystal clear this morning. Last couple days, I went to, uh, early in the morning, to the Corner Bakery Cafe in Simi Valley at the mall there. Just a beautiful view, a clear, clear view. It was so pretty this morning, and I, and I came down here between services. It's really clouding up. Huh? Is, are we supposed to get rain? Is that the deal? Is, is this in the, in the forecast? Yes? No? No. No, okay, just trying to fool us. All right, great. Hey, well, my name is Pastor Mike, and so glad that you're here. And uh, if you're a newcomer here to Rocky Peak, a uh, special welcome to you. And inside your bulletin is a white message note sheet that'll help you follow along today in our time of teaching. I encourage you to take that out. Uh, we're, in a, we're in a series right now in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached in the history of the world. It's uh, impacted the lives of billions of people and changed the course of human history. And so we're going to be continuing on in that, that section today in chapter 5. And so if you have your Bibles, um, do you have your Bibles today? Got your Bibles? A word? All right. All right. Very good. Very good. Okay. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives, in our church. Lord, we sense your spirit moving here. We sense him transforming lives. Lord, week after week, story after story. As, Lord, we are learning what it means to come out of the crowd and become a follower and have you change us from the inside out. And so, Lord, today is another step on that journey. We're excited to be here. We're excited to take it. God, I pray that you'd give me great freedom today as I share these things, share your word, that we would just all be able to take a journey together today with you and go back in space and time that, that time and place where you taught these important things and then we'd be able to take the things that we learn and bring them back for our life today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it was almost noon. And that meant it was time for her to get her pots and her clay jars and head outside of town to the well right outside of town. She hated doing this job. Every day she had to go and get water for the next day, hated this job, and she particularly hated going out at noon because at noon was the hottest time of the day. But it was the only time that she could be sure she'd see no one else because no one else went out for water at noon. All the other women in town, they would go out for their water in the morning or go out for the water in the afternoon when it was cooler. She was the only one who would go out at noon because it was the only time she was guaranteed not to see anyone. And that was her whole point. She was tired of all the women looking down their nose at her. They were tired of all the comments they would make about all the husbands that she had had. And so it was the one way that she could go out and have peace of mind and not have any conflict in her life and head out to the well and gather her water in peace. And so when she got out that, that, that day, she was surprised. She could tell from a distance that he was a man, and not he was a man, that he was a Jewish man by the way he was dressed. And she thought, well, there's no way that he'll talk to me because he's a Jewish man and I'm a Samaritan. And after all, there's no relationships between Jews and Samaritans. I suppose if you're a religious leader, you probably knew the reasons for that. It went back hundreds of years. But for the common average person, I'm not sure they even knew why. It was kind of like the, the Protestants and the Catholics in Northern Ireland. It's gone, this feud has gone on for so long, so many years, so many offenses. No one even remembers how it got started. More than that, she was a woman and he was a man. All the spiritual leaders of the day, at least most of them, said it was disgraceful for a man and a woman to talk alone in public like that. And so she heads through the well. He sits there. She's, she's surprised to see him. It almost looks like he's waiting for her, but she knows it can't be. 
And so she heads to the well and she's ready to get her water and all of a sudden he approaches her and he speaks to her and not only does he speak to her, he asks her for a drink. He takes her back, it surprises her. What's he doing? I'm a woman, he's a man, he's a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. What is he doing? In a little bit, his men come back from town and they're even more surprised. They've only been with him a few weeks, maybe a couple months. The Sermon on the Mount has not been delivered. They're just getting to know him. He's still blowing them away. Every time they turn around, he's blowing through some major tradition they thought was sacred. He's like the great tradition breaker. And now he's breaking two in one day. He's he's talking to a Samaritan. He's talking to a woman. But one thing they've learned already is you don't mess with him. You don't ask him about things like this. So they just kept their mouths shut. They were all surprised, but no one said anything. Well, it turns out that not only had they had a significant conversation that would change this woman's life for the rest of her life, what blew him away next was, was even more so. She went back into town, took him into town. Jewish rabbi going into Samaritan town. You don't see that happening. She gathers the town together. He begins to teach. And if you were there that week, I don't know what you would think was more strange that a Jewish rabbi is hanging out for two days in a Samaritan town. I mean, this is the way it was in those days. Samaritans, if you were a kid growing up, you would not play with Jewish kids and vice versa. In fact, Jews wouldn't even live in a town with Samaritans. They would live in a town with Romans. They would live in a town with pagan idolaters. But they would not live in a town with Samaritan. It's the way it was. It's the way you were brought up. It's the way you were raised. And so if you were there that day, that week, that, that Jesus came into town, I don't know what would be more surprising to you that this Jewish rabbi hung out for two days in a Samaritan town or that the Samaritan town listened to him for two days. <laughs> Today we come to the seventh beatitude in our study on the Sermon on the Mount. A seventh step in the path to true happiness. The seventh step to blessing. The seventh mark of a true disciple. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know the story. Jesus has launched his ministry in the north of Israel. People are coming from all over the country just to hear him teach, maybe catch a miracle. If you've not been with us the last few weeks, let me bring you up to speed quickly. So he's launching his movement. And there one day on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, I've been there before, it's a beautiful place, that he decides it's time to bring them up to speed on the message of his movement. And so he takes the crowds and his disciples and they head up the hill and they're overlooking the Sea of Galilee. He shares the message of his movement. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. It starts off with eight simple statements, eight statements about the path to true happiness in life. The path to, if you want to be happy in life, what does it take? How do you get there? They all start out the same way. It's why we call the Beatitudes or the Blessings, because they all start the same way. Blessed or happy is the man who does thus and so, and here's the reason why. It was a common Jewish way of teaching. Here's the way to get the most out of life. And so in that process, he's laying out for us, what does it look like to be a member of his kingdom? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What kind of person is he trying to recruit for his kingdom? What kind of person will you become if you follow this man? Eight characteristics, the character of his kingdom. Today we come to number seven. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter five and verse nine, and we'll look at the seventh character quality. As we've done every week, let's read it together, verse nine. You ready? Here we go. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I went too fast, didn't I? 
A lot of you are like, oh, where's Matthew? Where's Matthew? Okay, it's right before Mark. Okay, let's, I'll, I'll give you a chance. I'll give you another shot at that. You, I know you do much better than that. Chapter 5. We're all there now. Chapter 5, verse 9. Let's do it again. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Let's do it once again. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the bridge builders. Blessed are the wall breakers. Blessed are the relationship repairmen of life. Blessed or happy is the person who learns to bring people together and repair relationships. Why? Because they will be called sons or children of God. They, they, it's like they have the DNA of their father. People will look at them and they'll say, you look just like your dad. I, I see that family resemblance. He's a peacemaker. God is a peacemaker. He's the one who came after us while we were enemies, right? He's the one who came to die on the cross to make peace. God is the ultimate peacemaker. God is the ultimate wall breaker. God is the ultimate bridge builder. And he says, if you want to be my followers, it's about becoming a peacemaker. About learning how to draw people together. How to do relationships the right way. Now, the last week, last week we talked about blessed are the pure in heart. It was a beatitude that had to do with our relationship with God, our vertical relationship. How do we relate with God up and down, our vertical relationship? This beatitude deals with our horizontal relationships with other people. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in terms of our relationships with others? So what we're going to do today is we're going to unpack this. We're going to talk, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does that look like in everyday life? And just like we've done every week, we'll use this one little statement of Jesus to be the gateway into his life and teaching. What else does he teach about relationships? What else does he teach about being a peacemaker? And so there in your note sheet, you have a section. It's called what, what it means to be a peacemaker and what it doesn't mean. And as we get started, I want to talk about both. What it does mean, what it doesn't mean. And I actually want to start with what it doesn't mean. Because this is one of those statements of Jesus that's often been misunderstood. And before we can build on what it does mean, we need to blast on what it doesn't mean. We need to tear down uh, kind of false conceptions, okay? And so there in your note sheet, you have a section, what it doesn't mean. And let's, let's fill in those blanks. What it doesn't mean is to always get along with everybody at all costs. Okay? Aren't you glad? <laughs> Amen. Let's just close in prayer. That's good enough right there. <laughs> We're off the hook. We can go home. We got... Yeah, it doesn't mean, to be a peacemaker, doesn't mean to get along with everybody all the time at all costs. Uh, back in World War II, some of you will remember this. Some of you will remember reading about this. Some of you will not remember this at all. Back in World War II, when it started in the late 1930s, Hitler started making his move across Europe. And his first move was to annex a little part uh, that used to be part of Germany, a little country called Sudetenland. And then uh, after he annexed that, he moved on to like uh, Poland. 
and uh, Czechoslovakia. And then after that, he moved on to the Netherlands and Belgium and France. And, of course, the world is watching. And what's happening here? And who's going to stand up? And who's going to do what? And all eyes were on England or Great, Great Britain because it was England that was the only superpower left in the area. And it was England who'd stood up to Germany back in World War I. And so everyone's wondering, what's going to happen? And what's England going to do in response to Hitler? And England was basically doing nothing. And the reason was, is that they had a, a, a man who became very famous, became infamous as their prime minister. His name was Neville Chamberlain. And Neville Chamberlain didn't want to get involved. He remembered the horrors of World War I, and so he just kind of hoped that if he didn't do anything, things would get better. And at one point, he even went and had a treaty with, with Hitler. And, and basically, the, the idea was that, hey, you know, you've taken over all these countries. We're not really happy with you. Shame on you. But if you don't do anything else, let's just agree to, to leave it at that. Well, historians call it a policy of appeasement. It wasn't until Winston Churchill came to power in, I believe it was 1941, right about there, but he became the prime minister, that suddenly England jumped in with both feet. What Winston Churchill had been saying for years is, we got to do something. And they jumped in with both feet, and they began to do battle with Hitler, something they should have done years before, but they hadn't. And now it was even harder than ever because Hitler had so much land, so many countries that he'd, he'd conquered. Now you say, well, Mike, why are you bringing up the story of Neville Chamberlain? Well, because I think for a lot of Christians, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, what we read is that we are to be spiritual Neville Chamberlains. That we are to pursue a policy of personal appeasement. That we are never to have conflict in our lives. We are always to give up whatever someone asks. Even if it's something that's good or right or true that's being asked to be sacrificed, we always just give in. We, we run from conflict. We avoid conflict. We always, we always stand back. We never stand up. And that is clearly not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Clearly. You say, well, how do you know it's not what it means? Because it's not what Jesus did. And it's the whole point of following Jesus is to become like Jesus, right? That's why we're studying. One of my favorite stories takes place in Mark chapter 3. Let me, let me tell you, it's a Jesus story. Jesus comes into town one day. It's a Saturday because it's a Saturday. It's a Sabbath because the Sabbath they're having services at the local synagogue. So Jesus heads to the local synagogue. Now, of course, everyone's there. Everyone wants to see him teach, maybe do a miracle. He comes in, the place is packed. As he comes in, there's a, the people are there. The, there's the religious leaders of the, of the town are there. Now, they're sort of like the spiritual sheriffs of the nation. And they're, they're upset with Jesus for many reasons. They're upset with him because he's such a tradition breaker. He's just not an old-fashioned sort of guy. I mean, he's just like all the things they held sacred. He kept smashing these things, and he kept not honoring them. And he did a lot of areas where he'd smash their traditions. But one in particular really bugged that. And it was that he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, that's like being a doctor and having your business open on the Sabbath. You see, that's like having office hours. That's like working. And so they were really ticked off at him, and they're there. It's almost like a sting operation. 
They, they want to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. So the spiritual leaders are there. The town's there. The place is packed. Over in the corner is a guy. Let's call him Joe. Joe's got a crippled head. He's got a shriveled hand. He's over in the corner. He's got his cloak on. He probably doesn't have it out where you can see it. He's not real proud of it. He hangs in the shadows. Joe can't really hold down a job like anyone else because he can't work with his hands. And so Joe's over in the corner. And, and maybe Joe is even hoping that Jesus will heal him. We don't know. But he's over in the corner. And so let me ask you a question. How do you think Jesus, the peacemaker, is going to handle this situation? I mean, can, can you sense that? We've, we've got a conflict situation brewing here, right? We've got the religious leaders watching him to see if he'll heal on the Sabbath because they're trying to build a case against him the whole open court, right? So they're there. They're, they're hoping he does. It's like, I bet he does. I bet he does. I hope he does. Today we're going to get him. And so they're building their case. You got Jesus over here. You got the people over here. You got the, the crippled man over here. And so what does Jesus do? What does a peacemaker do in a situation like that? Jesus knew what was going on. He sensed it. Here's what I think. If we had never read the story about, that if many of us were writing the storyline of the script, this is how it would go. Jesus would go over in the corner. He'd say, hey, my name's Jesus. He'd go, what's your name? Well, my name's Joe. Good to meet you, Joe. Hey, Joe, couldn't help but notice. Didn't want to call attention, but I noticed your hands shriveled there. How long has that been going on? Well, it's a long time. I heard in this accident when I was 15, and, and now it's been shriveled, and I've just lost all ability to tend to so Everything's shrunk up, and you can see it's all heart and everything. He's like, hey, Joe, I'm really sorry about that. You know, Joe, I would love to heal. You probably heard that I can heal people, and, and I, I really can. I can do that. I would love to help you. But Joe, it's, I, what's the day? What's the day, Joe? It's, it, it's Saturday. Well, what does that mean, Joe? It's a Sabbath. Yeah, it's a Sabbath, right. And you see those guys behind me? I don't want to point to them, but the guys in the pointy hat over in the corner. You see those guys? Yeah, he says, well, those guys are really mad at me. Those guys are out to get me. They don't think I should heal on the Sabbath. Now, I think it's okay. You think it's okay, but it's really going to offend them if I heal on the Sabbath. And you know, I, I'm being a good Christian guy and a peacemaker and everything. I, I don't want to offend anybody. And so, would it be all the same to you if we met tomorrow, like 10 o'clock at Starbucks? I'll show up there. It'll only take me a second. I can heal your hand. Your hand's been hurt for what? 50 or probably 30 now. It's been 15 years. One more day. Probably not going to matter, right? Yeah, okay, okay. That sounds good, Jesus. 10 o'clock, Starbucks. Meet you there. Okay, so, so the, you know, if we're writing this script, we're going, now that is a Christian man. There is a peacemaker there. And Jesus is going, like, I'd really like to heal you now, but I'm really trying to win these guys over. And I'll tell you what, if I break one more tradition, they're going to get really irritated with me, and I'm never going to have an impact on their life, you know? And so I'm thinking, if I just don't heal you today, maybe, you know, they'll break down the walls. He's like, okay, sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. See you at 10. Great. Okay, Jesus goes up. He just goes on teaching now. No healings that day. I think that, that many of us, if we were writing the script, for a, that's what we would have him do. That's not what Jesus does. He's like up there teaching, and he sees Joe over in the corner, and he senses the conflict brewing, and he says, uh, excuse me, hey, Joe, can you come here? Who, me? This guy's, you know, hiding in the shadows. He doesn't want the spotlight. He doesn't want people looking at his crippled hand. He's kind of coming up here. He's coming up. He's got his, his cloak over his arm. He's just trying to hide. And now Jesus turns to the spiritual leaders, the sheriffs. And he says to them, hey, guys, I got a question for you. When it comes to the Sabbath, what do you think it's all about? Do you think on the Sabbath it's better to do good, for example, like heal a guy who's in pain, or do you think it's better 
to do evil. Like walk by a person who's suffering and you could heal them and you just let them stay in pain another day. Like which do you think the Sabbath is for? And they're like over there. We don't like the way you put that question. <laughs> we like the question, do you want to do work or not do work? Could you rephrase that? Yeah, sure I can. Do you think the, the, the Sabbath is meant for salvation or do you think it's for death? Well, we don't like that either. You see, you see what's going on here? He, Jesus is like, hey, object lesson time. Why? Because there was something at stake that was too important. What was at stake was what is God really like? Is God a person who's into rules and, rit and rituals and regulations? And a, a God who doesn't do good things on the Sabbath because it'd be a violation? Or does God care about people? And Jesus was unwilling to let that one go. There was a lot of things he would let go. That was too big. And so what does he do? He says, Joe, could you come here? Could you stand here in front of all of us? And Joe comes up, and he's kind of ashamed, and he's kind of embarrassed. He doesn't like the spotlight. He's kind of huddled there. He says, Joe, could you do us a favor? This is the last thing Joe wants to do, by the way. Could you extend your hand so we could all see it? Now, Joe spent his whole life covering his hand so no one can see it. He's embarrassed about his hand, but he says, okay, and his hand is all shriveled up, and it looks like an old apricot, like a dried apricot. The skin is wrinkled, and it's crinkled, and his hands, it's, it's shriveled, and the tendons have gone bad, and the ligaments have gone bad, and the flesh has become, it's, it's gone away, and there's just hardly anything to this hand. It looks like a bird claw, and, he, and he, he's there, and he's in front of everyone, he's embarrassed, and he begins to stick out his hand, and he just sticks out his hand. All of a sudden, the flesh begins to change, and the skin's like a baby's skin, and the, and the bones start straightening out, and the muscles come together, and the tendons come together, and the ligaments come together, and he's stretching it out. Everyone's blown away. Look at his hand. Look at his hand. It's normal. His hand. It's normal. And everyone's blown away except the spiritual leaders. They're like, did you see that? He healed on the Sabbath. That's what I'm talking about. I can't stand this guy. What is up with this guy healing on the Sabbath? There's six days to work. Come back tomorrow, do the Starbucks thing. Wow. And it says, the Bible says, that those leaders went out and plotted together in a bipartisan movement to kill Jesus. That day. That's where it started. That was the day they said, this is it. He's got to go. We're going to take him down. We're going to kill him. Let's figure out how we're going to kill him. Now let me ask you something. Do you think that Jesus didn't know that was going to happen? Do you think he's like, oh really? I thought they were going to go say, wow, that's awesome, Jesus. We were wrong about you. No, he knew exactly what was going to happen. His disciples are over there going, oh no, here he goes again. Why can't he do that peacemaker thing? Now they're going to be out to kill us. Man, why doesn't he practice what he preaches? <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers, remember? You just launched a war, right? Now, why do we take the time for that? Because we got to blast this thing that to be a peacemaker means we always get along with everyone at all costs. Unless we're clear on that, 
will never be loyal to Jesus and do the job we're supposed to do. So if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Well, there in your note sheet, what it does mean, what it means is according to Jesus, if you study his life and teaching, that our relationships we have with others, our relationships are really important. And so we need to work hard to repair them. Whereas our relationships, building healthy relationships is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, okay? Whereas if you want to follow Jesus, you're here today and you say, yeah, I don't want to be in the crowd. I want to be a follower. I want to follow Jesus. Then he says, okay, then here's the thing. You're going to have to learn how to do a relationships a new way. And part of that is when relationships are broken, here's the second part. We need to work hard to repair them, right? Now, I was trying to think, well, how can we get as practical as we, we, we can with this? And also, how can we look at other teaching of Jesus on this whole same topic? And so I put together some questions there on your note sheet. They're going to go through. And I'd like you to use them in a couple ways. I would like you to use them to do some self-evaluation for your life. Are you a peacemaker? You know, is this something that we characterize your life? And then also, it's a, a way for us to get at the teaching of Jesus on this topic. So let's jump in. Now, the first two questions are going to deal with how we relate in our own lives to one another. You know, how, how do, are we a peacemaker, peacemaker in our own relationships with others? The third one deals with are we a peacemaker in our world? Okay, the world that God has put you, your business, your uh, uh, place of employment, your family, extended family, your life group, your church, your ministry, or whatever. Okay, so let's jump in. Number one, first question. First question is, <coughs> are you quick to move towards conflict? Are you quick to move towards conflict? And are you willing to forgive? Uh, there's going to be two skills that we have to master if we're going to be peacemakers. We're going to have to learn how to, first of all, move towards conflict quickly in our life. And I'm not talking about every little conflict. That's something that you know, irritates you or whatever, you just let it go. But I'm talking about, you know, the kind of conflict you have where you start having brain debates about this person. Uh, the kind of conflicts where you start sharing with all your small groups for prayer purposes, you know. <laughs> that, you know, these kind of conflicts, it's, it's a conflict. It's turning into a bitterness, right? So, so there's two skills that we're going to have to learn as followers of Jesus. One is to move quickly towards conflict. The other one is how to forgive. Now, I'd like you to turn to a little passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 17. Jesus uh, assumes that you and I will have conflict in our life. Um, has anyone ever had conflict in their life here? Just great. Okay, well, most of you haven't. That's awesome. But I'm telling you, it is really painful. It, it's hard. And someday when you have some, I want you to remember what we're studying today because it will come back and be helpful. But anyway, so Jesus assumes we're going to have conflict. You know, there's only, the only way to avoid conflict in our life is to not be in relationship or to keep our relationship superficial. It's the only way. If you have any sense of deep or close relationships, you will always have conflict, which, by the way, is why marriage has so much conflict because it's the deepest of relationships. Why can't I get along with you? I get along with all the guys at work. Well, yeah, try living with them. You know, you know, you see, it's like the reason that marriage has so much conflict is because it's the deepest of relationship that the deeper you go, the higher the potential for conflict. 
And so the only way not to have conflict is to not have relationship. Jesus assumes this. His own disciples couldn't get along when he was with them. He knew they wouldn't get along after he left. He gives us some guidelines. Now, it's just a short little verse, so if you're going to fall asleep, this is not the moment to do it, all right? Because it's going to happen really fast. It's going to happen really fast here. He's going to just a principle. Verse 3. Uh, so watch yourselves. That really goes with verse 2. Um, here's, here it comes. He says, if your brother sins, now he's talking about sinning against you. If your brother sins against you, they do something that irritates you. Your brother does something that ticks you off. Your brother does something, that, that's not right. And we're not talking some little thing. It's just, that's not right what you did. That was a major wrong. You know, you did something, it was really clearly wrong. He says, if your brother sins, he says, avoid him. Oh, no, no, I was reading your thoughts. <laughs> okay. Um, if your brother sins, pretend it never happened. Right? Uh, if your brother sins, ignore it and sweep it under the carpet. Is that what it says? Now, what's it say? If your brother sins, what does it say to do? Rebuke him. Now, isn't that interesting? I bet they never had you... Memorize that one when you were growing up. You're looking for a plaque to put on your wall. You got one right there. If your brother sins, rebuke him. It's like, not a big sales item in Christian bookstores, but, but it's unique, you know. Bumper sticker. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Jesus. I think it would take off, you know. On the 405, I'm telling you, there's a market there. Right there. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Jesus. Now, isn't this interesting that the man who's the peacemaker, the man who says, blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be children of God, that he says when we're in conflict, we're to move towards it and we're to deal with it. Isn't that interesting? And this is the opposite of what we often do. As believers, if our brother sins, we pretend, we ignore, we withdraw, we pray, we share it with our friends. But Jesus, hey, if there's something wrong in the relationship, move towards it. Rebuke him. Call him on it. Move towards it. And then he goes on and he says, now, and if he repents, what are we to do? Forgive him. Okay, let it go. So there's two things that we have to learn if we're going to be Christ followers in this church is we have to learn how to move towards conflict quickly. We have to learn how to forgive. Two skills that Christ followers have to learn. Now, to be honest, when I was first working on this sermon, this is one of those sermons you get done writing it, and it's like, that's like three sermons. It's like a three-hour sermon. And so there's just things that had to go by the wayside. And so I wish we had time today to talk more about, well, how do we move towards it? And how do we forgive? And later on in the Sermon on the Mount, forgiveness becomes a very big topic. And we will deal with some of that later on, okay? But for today, all I want you to catch is if you want to be a follower of Jesus in your marriage, a follower of Jesus in your family, a follower of Jesus in your community, in your church, that we have to learn how to do these two skills. We have to move towards conflict. We have to learn how to forgive, all right? Okay, number two. Second question, are you quick to say you're sorry and willing to make things right? 
in your life when there's conflict? Are, there, are you quick to say you're sorry and you're willing to make things right? Now, in the previous example, we said that when someone sins against us, we're to move towards them. Well, what about when we are the one who sins? What about when we realize that we've done something to hurt someone, whether it's our family, our marriage, our, our, our business, whatever, church? What, what, what are we supposed to do? Well, also, we're to move towards it quickly, aren't we? But, of course, instead of moving towards it to confront, we're moving towards it to say we're sorry. Jesus tells a great story about this. It's later on in Matthew 5. We'll come to it in a few weeks. It's a great illustration, kind of extreme illustration to make a point. But he's making a point that it's impossible to be right with God and wrong with people. This is the point. And I need to say this here, just real quick, a little caveat. That there are some people who don't want to get along with you, right? There are some people, it doesn't matter what you do, they want to be your enemy. The religious leaders were like that for Jesus, right? So, so I understand, in fact, Paul says in Romans 12, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Okay, so there's some people, I understand that. So we're not talking about those categories. But Jesus says it's impossible to be right with God and wrong with people. And so to make his point, he's teaching and he says, um, okay, let me give you an illustration. Let's say you go to Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jerusalem was the place where you would go to offer your sacrifices. Now, this wasn't like going to church. This was like an unusual experience. You might live in Galilee. You might be live a week away from Jerusalem. So to go to Jerusalem, offer your sacrifices is a big deal. And so that's why this extreme, you'll see how extreme this, this illustration is to make a point. And so Jesus says, okay, let's say that you've gone to Jerusalem and you've got your sheep and you're in line. You're in the sheep line. You're, gonna have, you know, you're ready to sac- do sacrifices. You're there and you're, you're meeting the people around you. Hey, I'm from Galilee. Well, I'm, from, I'm a local. And oh, good to meet you. And where'd you get your sheep? What'd you pay? And, and so you kind of go along in the sheep line. You're ready to do your sacrifice. You're getting all ready for your sacrifice. And he says, okay, and while you're doing that, that all of a sudden you, you remember, God brings to your mind, that Fred back in Galilee has something against you. That you've hurt Fred and you never really made it right. And you're like, bummer, what should we do? And you think what Jesus would say is go ahead and sacrifice, do your sacrifice, ask God to forgive you, then go back and check with Fred and say, I'm really sorry, Fred. I should have made this right, but I wasn't. I was in Jerusalem. Jesus says, no, leave your sheep there with the guy who got a better deal. Give, hey, could you hold my sheep? I need to go for a couple weeks. I'm going to go back to Galilee. I'm going to find Fred, and I need to make it right with Fred. And then I'll come back. And that's what Jesus says we're to do. It's an extreme way of him saying, hey, he says, in your relationship with God, if you want to be a follower of mine, you need, if there's something wrong with your relationships, you need to work those out first. Don't come and be, try to be close to God and wrong with people. You see? And so we need to learn to say, now, So what this means is that followers of Jesus, we need to get really good at apologizing. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands here. But how many of you would say, I'm good at apologizing? I'm really good at that. Uh, It's been said that the nine hardest words in the English language go like this. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Period. Right? That's what apology is. Apology is is owning our issues. It's apology is saying, I'm sorry for what I did. It's kind of leaving the butt out of it. 
You know what I'm talking about? You know how we apologize? Yeah, I'm so sorry I said that, but you made me. You know how to push my buttons. You drive me crazy. I can't believe I ever hooked up with you. And your mother, and you're just like your mother. In fact, your grandmother. What? What? You think? Wow, I'm really feeling your remorse coming through here. It's like, whoa. It's kind of like we offer the, 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 the peace branch, you know. I'd like to be at peace with you. Now I'm calling in the bombers, right? And so what I did is I just said, uh, hey, I'm sorry for my part, but of course it wasn't very big because the real problem is you. <laughs> See, that's not an apology, that's, not, that's a covert attack. See, an apology is where we own our part of the issue. I'm sorry for what I did, period. I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me, period. Now, now as, as followers of Jesus, we need to master those nine words if we're going to be peacemakers. In fact, we're going to try it right here. We're going to do it right now, okay? You ready? Here we go. I'm sorry, I was wrong, Will you forgive me, period, right? Very good, very good. Let's try it again because some of you are going to need those on the way home today. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I, wrong. (laughs) See, I'm not very good at this. Period, right? Period. You, You get it? And so if we're going to be peacemakers, when we're out of line, we need to act. All right? Okay. Now, let's go on. The, the second part of this principle goes like this, that we are to, uh, sometimes it's not good enough just to say we're sorry. We need to make it up. Um, if you were here last week, we studied the story of Zacchaeus. In that story, if you remember, it goes like this, Zacchaeus <clears throat> has a moment of revelation where he realizes what he's done and he's made money his gods and it's ruined his life. And you remember right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, he says, Jesus, I right here, right here now, I'm going to give away half of everything I own to the poor. And then he said an interesting thing. He said, and if I've ever ripped off anyone, which he had, he said, I will pay back, pay them back four times. Now, it's really interesting. Why did he say that? Well, because in the Old Testament, there was a series of laws called laws of restitution. That said, for example, in Exodus 22.1, if you steal your neighbor's sheep and, and they, you get caught, you don't just go and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? What you say is, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And instead of one sheep back, I'm giving you four sheep back. Now, why did the law require that? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is, it makes it a lot easier to restore the relationship if you get four sheep back, right? And so there's a principle here, I think, that in our relationships, many times, it's not good enough for us to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? We need to take the next step and say, is there anything I can do to make it up? That's just a great question to ask. Is there anything I can do to make this up? Let me give you an extreme example but it really makes the point well. Is that, let's say that you know a, a couple and they've gone through an affair. One of, one of the, the partners has had an affair. Now what will often happen, you see this oftentimes, is that 
They'll try to get back together, which is a good thing. They're going to try to heal this marriage, and that's a good thing. And so the offending partner will come back, and he will say, I'm sorry, or she will say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? The person says, yes, I will. But then the offending partner, they expect life to go back to normal. They expect the trust to go back to normal. And now, if you've ever known a couple like that, if you've been in a situation, you're in, uh, you've experienced that, you know that as the, the, the spouse that was offended, it's hard to trust, isn't it? Forgiveness can happen in a moment, but the trust has to build over time. And so often what will happen is that the other spouse will say, hey, could we have some boundaries here? Could you call me at night, you know, when you're working late and call this? And could we work this out? If you have to be gone, could you do this? And they'll come up with certain things. This would help me. And often what you'll find is the person who had the affair will resist that and say, no, I just want you to trust me. I want to go back the way it was. I thought you forgave me. They don't understand the difference between forgiveness and trust. Forgiveness is given, trust is earned, right? And there's a difference there. And so, so what's very appropriate is for the person who's had the offense to not take it so personally and just say, you know what, I get that. Yes, I will do that. Is there anything I can do to make it up for you? And it brings such healing into the situation. You see, it allows trust to build. And so when we hurt someone in our life, it's great to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? But oftentimes, it's really helpful to ask that next question, is there anything I can do to make it up? And even if they say no, you know what it does? It shows, it shows them that you are really serious. And it allows them to let it go. It helps them just to let it go and move on. Okay, number three. There's a third question. The first two dealt with our relationships with one another. I've hurt you, you hurt me. But now this one deals with our influence in our circle of influence, our our world, so to speak. And it goes like this. Are you a force for peace or a source of conflict? Are you a force for peace or are you a source for conflict? Have you ever known that there are some people that just have the gift of stirring things up? They're the person, they come into your workroom, the lunchroom at work, and wherever they go, conflict follows them. They're the kind of person, if you're having an interpersonal conflict with someone, they'll, they'll say to you, you're not going to let him get away with that, are you? What is he thinking? You can't treat you like that. Who, you can't let him do, you see what I'm saying? And they just stir things up wherever they go. They stir things, well, why did he say that? What do you think he meant by that? What do you think she meant by that? That didn't sound quite right to me. You see, and they just stir things up. There are other people that wherever they go, they pour oil on the water. They help people get along. These people over here, they're like pouring gas on the fire wherever they go. So the question is, in your life, in your families, your extended family, your neighborhood, your friendships, your life group, your church, your business, are you a person that's a force for peace? You help people connect and, and get healed or, and you hold relationships together. Or are you more of a source of conflict? We started the day with a story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. The reason I told that story was because Jesus was being a wall breaker in that story. He was being a bridge builder. He lived in a day and time when Jews and Samaritans didn't have any contact. Men and women didn't have any contact. And so Jesus was all about breaking down walls. This morning I was at the Simi Valley Mall and I was reading in the LA Times 
and it was reminding me of a story. It was actually yesterday morning. Was, but it was a story back in 1987. Remember when President Reagan went to West Berlin? He delivered a very famous speech at the Brandenburg Gate there, the gate, right, of the, of the wall that separated East Berlin from West Berlin. Do you remember that? Do you remember those historic words? As he, he said in that speech, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, right? Tear down this wall. And Jesus comes and he says to us as his followers, I want you to be men and women who are wall breakers. I want wherever you to go to be a force for peace. I want you to help people be, get along in your small groups, in your church, in your families, in your communities, in your job. You are to be a bridge builder, a wall breaker, a peacemaker, you see? And that's what Jesus was doing. He was visioning, he was starting a movement, a movement that would one day change the world, that would break down barriers. And within 15 years, the gospel had gone out of Jerusalem and his movement had gone to Samaria. And Samaritans had become Christians, followers of Jesus. And Jews and Samaritans were being reunited. If you go to chapter 10 of Acts and then chapter 15, you've got the gospel going to Gentiles and new barriers being broken down. And in the church and the movement, you see, Jesus is about breaking down barriers. He breaks down barriers between race. He brings, breaks, breaks down barriers between sexes. He breaks down barriers between rich and poor. Jesus is a wall breaker. And he calls us to share in this mission, this world to be wall breakers. I want you to look at a passage of scripture real quick. It's not on your note sheet. It was a late edition after the press. Galatians chapter three. New Testament, little book of Galatians. Chapter 3. If you don't have a clue, I do table of contents. Chapter 3. That's why God put it there. <laughs> Chapter 3. You see, if you were there that day when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, and if you could look down the course of time, you could see that what he was doing was historic. He was starting a movement. He was breaking down old barriers. In Chapter 3 of Galatians. Paul writing to this church of Gentile Christians. And he says in verse 26, he says, you are all, all of you, doesn't matter your background, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And catch this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Jesus is the ultimate wall breaker, ultimate peacemaker. Isn't that beautiful? And he comes and he visualizes a church here at Rocky Peak that breaks down walls. He visualizes a church here that is a breakdown of walls between races, a breakdown of walls between the economics, a breakdown of walls between the de denominationalism. You see? Jesus is a wall breaker and he asks us to be part of his movement. It's so exciting to watch what God's doing here at Rocky Peak and hear the stories of God, how God's transforming lives. This last year, a couple stories that stand out to me of great examples of peacemakers. I asked them for permission. They gave me permission to use them. One, they both involved the public school system. There was uh, a a lady, there was a couple here in our church, and they had a daughter who's in like nine or ten years old, third or fourth grade at the time, 
And uh, she was at her school, and she was not allowed to speak of Christ in her school. The teacher said, you know, church separation, church and state thing. And so when it came time for sharing time, she couldn't share about her faith. When it came time for uh, projects, she couldn't use the Bible. And when it came time for singing in the school talent show, couldn't sing a Christian song. And so the parents felt like, well, this isn't right. And so they did some research, and here's what they found out. Well, let me, let me hold that story. Yeah, that's, that's story number one, story A, okay? Story B. There's another, there's another lady, uh, family in our, our family, single, single uh, parent family. And uh, this mom has a high schooler who was um, in the uh, 10th grade, and she was at a public high school. And in her public high school, there's several things going on that were really disturbing to her. One of them was in her, cl- her science class, the science teacher was teaching that evolution is a fact. And that it's the only, uh, it's the only kind of re- realistic way of looking at life. Anyone who believes anything else is a fool. And, and so just kind of teaching it that way, and that bothered her. There was a second thing. It was another class. And on the first day of class, this teacher wrote on the board, here are the rules of class. No gum chewing, uh, you know, no getting out of your seat or whatever, and the, all these rules. At the bottom, he said, if you don't agree with these rules, or if you break these rules, F slash U. And so the teacher waited. He went over the rules and waited for that to sink in. Like, whoa. And, and then uh, he said, well, the F stands for uh, failure, and the U stands for unsatisfactory. The mom just felt like, that's not appropriate. The, 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 she has a daughter, on the, the, her daughter's on the volleyball team, and just some of the tactics there just seemed over the top. And so, so what happened? So this family number one, the one that the 10-year-old, they handled it in a great way. They, they began to do their research. They began to, to find out their rights, you know, that as, what are their rights as, as, as Christians? What are their rights as their religious rights? And they, they begin to research and they find out all this great information. And, and on top of that, they find out in the state of California at those age levels, there's actually certain things about the Bible and our history and so on that are actually mandated to be taught. They're, they're, in the, they're required in the curriculum let alone not be able to mention it, it's required for teachers to be teaching this. And so they went in to see the principal and with just a loving approach, not coming in, you know, trying to drop a nuclear bomb, they just went in as peacemakers to move towards this issue. And they shared their heart and they shared, here's what we learned. And you know what? That principal didn't know. He didn't even know that people had those rights. He was just so afraid of offending other people, you see, he'd swung the pendulum. And so once he learned it all changed. And she was able to go back to her class and she was able to use her Bible in her school project. She was able to share about Jesus in their sharing time in their personal life. She was able to sing her song in front of a talent show for hundreds of kids. You see, it all changed. It was a beautiful example of moving towards conflict but with the right attitude. You know, there's a story that we don't have time to go over, but it's a story of Jesus. He's going to the Samaritan town. James and John, two of his disciples, are there. The Samaritans, they find out that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. We already, you, got, you got the picture how they feel about that. And so they refuse to give him any help. And when the word comes back to Jesus that they won't help him because they're heading towards Jerusalem, I love it. James and John, two of the apostles of the early church, say, Jesus, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? I love these guys. And they're such losers. <laughs> and it gives me such hope. It's like, yeah, I'd probably be with them. Yeah, let's nuke them. You know, it's like, hey, you're the son of God. They shouldn't be treating you that way. And the Bible says that Jesus turned to James and John and he said, what are you thinking? The Bible says he rebuked them. Oh, what I found is often in Christian circles, we're more like James and John than we are like Jesus. 
we get into a conflict situation like this, we want to call down the fire of God on that school for doing these things, you see? Jesus says, no, 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 we move towards it. We move as peacemakers. And so, so that was their experience. So this, this high school mom, she call, contacts me. I put them in touch with this couple because they did such a great job in the research. And they coach her and they share their research, what they learned. And so she goes in and meets with that principal. And, and so then she sends them an email back after meeting with the principal to how well it went. And she copied me on it. And I asked her for permission to share it. Let me just read a little bit of that to you. She says, good morning to them. And she says, you know, I feel so great this morning. She said, I had an appointment this morning with my daughter's school principal to discuss the way evolution is being presented. Thanks to all the great info you gave to me, I was able to walk in his office feeling very confident. He immediately pulled up the school standards on his computer saying the law requires evolution to be taught. Well, currently, not only is my daughter being taught this in high school, but my 11-year-old son's learning also. The difference is my son's teacher presents it as theory and some scientists uh, the, uh, theory that, of some scientists, and also states that there are many who don't share in this theory, whereas my daughter's teacher was presenting it as the only fact. I'm delighted to report that the principal was very receptive to the way I presented my thoughts, and we'll be having a teacher's meeting to make sure teachers understand the proper way to present this theory. Since I went on to tell them about the teacher who on the first day of class gave the class rules such as no gum chewing, talking in class, etc., and then wrote on the board, if you break these rules, F you. The teacher was trying to use crude or vulgar language to get a reaction from the kids. I explained that we must not desensitize our kids to the use of profanity. There are so many ways to get a point across without implying a vulgar word. And he agreed. So you would have thought that I would have stopped there, but I was having a good feeling about the receptive attitude. <laughs> So I continued on to sports. My daughter's volleyball team's treated like they committed a crime if they lose a game. They aren't allowed to talk, and the day after the game, they set up two trash cans in the, in the gym in case they need to throw up. After the vigorous workout, they're given as punishment for losing. I explained that one of the things being on the team teaches us is learning just to, to lose graciously and then being able to look at our faults properly and make corrections for a better next game. While no one enjoys losing, it's, very, it's important to accept a loss properly. I was an athlete my entire life. I was never made to feel so horrible at a loss as, these, as they do to the kids now. It becomes so ugly. Again, he seemed shocked to hear this. He took notes on everything, and I appeared to have opened his eyes. He thanked me, shook my hand, said he appreciated me taking time off of work to meet with him this morning, and he would definitely speak to all the appropriate people on these topics without bringing up my daughter's name so that she would have no fallout from our talk. He gave me his word on that. Thank you so much for giving me the tools to present, writing to this other couple in the church now, thank you so much for giving me the tools to present myself in a non-emotional and educated manner. I felt like the words just flowed out of my mouth without a moment's hesitation of what I should say next. Your support meant the world to me. What a great feeling to stand up for our kids. And with warm regards, mom determined to make a difference. Isn't that awesome? You see, now that, there's, there's peacemaker. There's a peacemaker in action. Someone who's moving towards conflict but appropriate way, you see? And Jesus calls us to be a force for peace in this world. It's part of the core meaning of what it means to be a follower. So, so how is that working in your life? Are you a force for peace? Would those who know you best, would they say where, where you go, they pour oil on the water, or where you go, fire, pour uh, a gas on the fire? I'll tell you, many times in Christian circles, we are known more for the gas and the fire than the, than the oil on the water. And so it's a challenge.
So Jesus comes to us to say today, and he says, I want you to be peacemakers. I want you to be wall breakers. I want you to be bridge builders. I want you to be people that act like I do, that reach out and help people connect who are disconnected, and your own lives move towards conflict. When you're wrong, be the first to admit it. If you need to make it up, make it up, and be a force for peace wherever you go, because then people will look at you and say, hey, I recognize that guy. He looks just like his dad. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing here in our church and teaching us, Lord, more and more what it means to follow you. And today we talk about being a peacemaker. May you make us peacemakers, wall breakers, bridge builders. We pray this in your name. Amen. Loving a person is not the small thing, it's the whole thing. I think Jesus would like that song. What do you say? Two things important in life, love God, love one another, and top top commandments. And this week we've looked at that second one. What does it mean to love one another, work through our conflict? I've got a question for you as we go. The question is, is there anyone in your life that you need to reach out to based on this message today? You know, we, we study the teaching of Jesus. One thing we learned at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, there, he said, I'm going to talk to you about a bunch of things. He says, but the difference between a wise person is a fool and the fool is that the wise person listens to my message and he's going to go out and do it. The fool is the one who listens and then doesn't do it. And there, I know there's a lot of us here that we have kind of broken relationships, maybe people that have already died, people that um, we don't even know where they are. But, but we may be some of us here who have a relationship with someone that just God is really speaking to you about. You need to reach out. They may respond, they may not respond, but as far as it depends on you, he's calling you to respond. I just ask you to do that this week, to take that step to be a, a peacemaker. I know last week we had the message about Zacchaeus and how God sometimes puts his finger on an area of impurity in our life and says, this is what the next step is. It was so great. I had a woman come up after the service and uh, she shared, she said, Mike, you know, there's a decision you made a while back and just really, uh, I was offended by that decision, kind of a directional decision. I was offended by it and, and I just had a bitterness in my heart. She said, as you were talking about Zacchaeus today, God just put his finger and said, that's you need to make that right, you know. And she came up and said, would you forgive me? And we had a big hug. And it was just a beautiful, I was so proud of her. You know, it's like she was being a peacemaker. Jesus has called us to be wall breakers, bridge builders, peacemakers. It's what it means to be a follower of his. And so in your life this week, if there's a person like that, the, the Holy Spirit's putting on your life, I encourage you to take that step to step out and be a peacemaker. Now next week, we're going to finish up this introductory section of the Sermon on the Mount um, about the Beatitudes. It's, uh, Beatitude number eight, the last one. Blessed are the persecuted, when you are persecuted for the sake of doing the right thing, that God is, is with us and that we will be part of his kingdom. And so I hope you can be here. We're going to talk about courage. A very huge component in being a Christ follower is being a man or a woman of courage. So I hope you can join us then. We'll see you next week. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.